next council is responsible for updating the next 10-year municipal development plan. That will shape how we grow as a city. But that document doesn't just impact land use, that impacts transportation, that impacts our economy, that impacts our environment. And if you don't develop that plan properly, you're going to put yourself in a, in a challenging position. Hi, I'm Jason Scott, and welcome to iloveedmontonrealestate.com. With me today is Andrew Knack. Andrew is the incumbent city councillor for Ward 1 here in Edmonton. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So tell me how uh, things are going on the campaign trail. Oh, they're going very well. It's uh, it's always a busy time as you get closer and closer to the election. Every every waking moment is pretty much spent at the doors. Uh, as long as people are awake, you don't go out too early or too late. But uh, it's been great so far and looking forward to uh, to continuing to do this. Okay, so this show focuses on uh, real estate related matters, which on a, uh, a municipal basis is obviously um, very near and dear to people's hearts on a whole lot of different levels. What sort of uh, feedback are you getting from people when you do door knocking these days? So it really does depend on the community you're in, but uh, especially Ward 1 includes communities that are developing right now that are very new uh, without a lot of infrastructure. So there's a different set of needs compared to the needs of a lot of the mature communities, which are going through uh, significant change. So speaking of real estate, I mean, you're seeing uh, almost every home that goes up for sale in, in older neighborhoods uh, is often a possibility for redevelopments. And so that's a that's a big conversation topic in a lot of mature communities. While some people are happy to see new housing come into the neighborhood, others are hesitant as they don't know what that really means and how that's going to impact them. Right. And Ward 1 does cover some older mature neighborhoods. Very much so. We have some of the oldest, uh, we have the oldest community league in Canada in Crestwood and, and Parkview. And then uh, so you have some of those really old communities. You have some that were uh, part of the town of Jasper Place, when the, they were built in the 50s and 60s, there are a few communities that are in the early 80s, and then you have some of the newest communities. So you've got very different uh, generations of communities in Ward 1. Okay. With regards to infill, and, and Crestwood is a perfect example yeah. of a neighborhood that's seen lots of redevelopment over, yeah. for a number of years mm-hmm. now. So they've been the leading edge on that in your ward, probably. Uh, what, what do you hear from people there when you talk to them? And again, it's it's very much a mix. I think you ha- you talk to some people who love to see new housing go up, who recognize in particular in communities like that where, where infill has been occurring for really almost a decade. Uh, almost every single bungalow that's sold in the community of Crestwood gets torn down and something new goes in its place. Uh, I think more recently, though, you're seeing a different uh, or a variety of options go up. Uh, oftentimes in the past, it was simply bungalow was torn down in a new sort of uh, uh, whether you want to call it a monster home or just a larger single family home on the on the 50 foot lot goes in. Uh, you're now starting to see some of the new narrow homes go up on the 25 foot lots. And so when you talk to people, again, you get that range. You have some who, who are happy to see any type of new housing. They see that as a revitalization of the community. They see new housing as something that, you know, helps increase property values in the neighborhood as well. But you certainly have some who are are concerned. They, they don't necessarily know that uh, new infill development can increase property values. They worry about the impact of something new getting built right beside them. Mm-hmm. They worry about construction at times and how that's going to impact them throughout that process. Uh, and then you have some who, who don't want to see any change at all. And and, uh, and I understand that perspective. It is it is very tough when you've spent your entire life, when you've raised a family in the community and you start to see that the housing change 
it can be jarring for people. What I don't think is often considered is that, of course, many of these communities have already seen significant changes in the last 30 years because the populations have dropped dramatically. The right. schools are in low enrollment. We have local businesses that often don't have the population base anymore to be sustainable. And so that this is part of a natural transition of a city, but particularly a, a city that used to be sort of a large, small city, and now we're turning into a small, big city. Mm -hmm. And this is what happens in, in larger cities. You, you do go through that transition. But I understand the, the challenges for some people, and, and that's why council's been working on trying to enhance things like the construction practices, uh, increasing fines on, on those who aren't following the rules, and, uh, and making sure that there are more opportunities so for redevelopment. Right. Okay. You know, one of the issues that Edmonton would have uh, is we don't have natural geographic constraints mm -hmm. like, say, a Vancouver has with the mountains and the ocean, or Toronto has with their green belt, etc. So we could theoretically have unlimited development in outlying mm -hmm. neighborhoods. What, what sort of issues do you see coming from that? Well, and I think that's why, generally speaking, everyone understands why the city has to work on infill. We could grow out forever, but we can't because that's financially uh, challenging for a city. That, that really challenges your sustainability financially because you have to build new police stations, new fire halls, rec centers, parks, libraries. And so that creates a, a challenging dynamic. Uh, you've got the environmental challenge. We're using up premium agricultural land. And, uh, and I think people hate to see a lot of that farmland used up and don't want to see that continue, at least at the pace that we've been doing it over the last uh, two decades, really. Mm -hmm. And then the other challenge, again, goes back internally within the mature communities, having seen that just huge drop in populations, but particularly in children. It's why you see many communities struggle to have schools stay open. In fact, just uh, very recently, uh, Edmonton Public School Board made some decisions for some West End communities where they are going to be closing some schools once they uh, do a rebuild in certain areas. So mm -hmm. that's never really good for a neighborhood. I think generally speaking, again, why everyone gets the city needs to focus on infill but really the key is uh, how do we continue to, to make it better mm -hmm. so that that experience for everyone, both the new people moving into the community, but those that are still con continuing to live in that community have that, uh, you know, reasonable and, and pleasure, you know, pleasant experience. Yeah. I, I, you know, the school thing is sort of near and dear to my uh, mm -hmm. heart. I live in a older neighborhood right near downtown and, you know, it's a continuing struggle to make sure there's enough kids in that particular school. Does the school board and city council or, or the administration, do they communicate at all in terms of planning and saying, hey, this is what we want to see happen, or are you operating in separate silos? I think there's an objective and a goal to be working closely together. I think it's hasn't always been perfect. And I do reference the, the recent discussions we've had in the West End here for a number of the school discussions. I think there's there's room for improvement. Uh, what I would have liked to have seen during the most recent conversations that the school boards were hosting is uh, a dedicated role for the city to play throughout that process. It's to say, all right, if this were going to happen, what would we think about for the space? What are the opportunities in this community? But on the other side of things, and I think this is a, the community of Glenwood actually brought this up quite a bit. We're going to be bringing the West LRT alongside their community. Uh, that's going to generate significant infill opportunities. And uh, their community had suggested to the school board saying, if, you know, if the city is investing in this and they have a desire to see infill, maybe it's worth holding off a little bit to let that process 
you know, really go through itself and, and bring new people back into the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So I, while I know the decisions were made, I think there's still some opportunity we have right now because, you know, they haven't, they're not closed today. Uh, it's only once you get some of these new buildings built uh, mm-hmm. would that conversation begin to happen. Uh, so I think there's some opportunities uh, citywide still for the school board in the city to, to work more closely together to really identify those opportunities and say, Across the city, we're working on opportunities to provide more infill, more housing choice. And therefore, you know, let's not make any hasty decisions because we're going to we want to bring those populations back up to what they were 30 or 40 years ago. You know, the other thing is communities go through a natural life cycle. Yeah. You know, so those communities 30, 40 years ago that were jammed full of kids. Yeah. Now the parents of those kids are moving on. That's right. right? And so you're getting new families going in even without infill. That's right. Yeah. And, and the only challenge we run into is that when you go back 40 years ago and look at census data, uh, the average household size in Alberta was about four people per household. The average household size now in Alberta is around 2.5 per household. So even though there is a bit of a natural rejuvenation or revitalization, because the populations and the average family size are much smaller, you can't get to those uh, levels that you had 30 or 40 years ago, simply replacing one house for one house and bringing in a new family. Right. And that's part of why the city's looking for additional opportunities to, to bring people back. Right. Now, but I would, I would argue that some of that number decreased mm-hmm. the 2.5 as an yeah. example. I mean, a lot of those are, yeah, let's say, divorced families. Absolutely. We still have the same number of kids. They're just split up between two households, right? That's a great point. Yeah. And I mean, you don't want to solely rely on that number. Uh, it's just something to think about as we go through that that transition in our communities. Uh, you know, there are a lot of seniors who are living longer and staying in their home for longer. And that's a great thing. We want to encourage that. And I mean, part of when we think about infill is often we're just thinking about uh you know, either large single-family homes on 50-foot lots, larger homes on 25-foot lots. But we also don't think about, as much as we should, things like courtyard housing, where you have, you know, 30 or 40 units of semi-detached single-story housing for seniors. And very few mature communities have housing like that. So the reason you have a lot of seniors staying in the community as long as they are is because they might want to move somewhere else because they don't feel like they can maintain their existing home. But there's not a choice in the yeah. immature communities. That's right. It's that, bungalow or condo, right? Exactly. And nothing in between. That's exactly right. And those bungalows often need a lot of work and it's not very accessible. There can be other styles of bungalows. As you see in many new neighborhoods, you have actually plenty of those developments where it's a 50 plus development. It's uh, it's condo like, but they, they own their own home. But they they have the common services, snow removal and and lawn care being being uh, addressed through condo fees or homeowners association. Mm -hmm. We don't have really anything. Very few communities in the mature neighborhoods have things like that. Mm -hmm. So obviously that's something that you would like to see develop. Absolutely. I think our zoning bylaw creates some challenges right now around creating that type of housing. And, and I think that's something the council, the next city council will need to uh, to address to provide more opportunities for, for housing like that. Infill is not just for young families. Infill is for seniors. Infill is for everyone. It's about providing uh, an opportunity for somebody to live in the their community for their entire life. And really, again, you look at most new neighborhoods, and they have that variety. I always think about Lewis Estates, which is one of the oldest new communities outside the Henday. Mm-hmm. And Lewis Estates has single-family homes on large lots, single-family homes on narrow lots, semi-detached housing, row housing, town housing. 
they have apartment buildings, condos, and even retirement centers. Mm -hmm. uh, and that courtyard housing I was talking about earlier. So you really, at any stage of your life, can continue to live in Lewis Estates, even if the particular home you're in now doesn't fit your needs anymore. So few communities have that that luxury right now, being able to age within your community. Mm -hmm. Right. One of the uh, hot topics in some mature neighborhoods is lot splitting and then building the skinny homes. Mm -hmm. And you have personal experience That's on right. this. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So I live in the community of Jasper Park, uh, which is right across the street from Meadowlark Mall. And, you know, I, I love my neighborhood. I plan on living for it as long as humanly possible. And because of that, though, I, you know, I've seen my community. And, and again, we talked about schools earlier. James Gibbons School in the community of Jasper Park is one of the lowest enrollments uh, in the city. You know, we were fortunate that some of our local businesses draw uh, people from across the city like Bonton Bakery. But um, not every business has that luxury of attracting a citywide uh, sort of clientele. And so as I looked at my community and, and uh, you know, I saw some of these challenges and said, this is the community I want to stay in for as long as possible. Uh, I thought there'd be an opportunity because I wanted to build a home for family to actually subdivide one of the lots that I actually can see outside of my condo window that had been for lack of, well, let's just say it was very run down and it, it, uh, it was it, ready to go. It was ready to go and it wasn't <laughs> adding a lot of value to yeah. our community. And so I saw that as an opportunity to say, you know, if, if this is the place I want to keep living in, why not invest in my own community? Why not do this? And so, you know, I ended up purchasing uh, this lot to, to tear down the existing home and thought about doing the subdivision because it allowed me to build one home for family and then the other home we could either sell or, or potentially rent out depending on the circumstances. But I mean, early on in the process, the first thing I did is actually sit down with the we sat down with the neighbors and the community league to talk about this, knowing that some communities are are uh, more hesitant with that type of infill than others. Thankfully, uh, the community I live in Jasper Park has really identified infill as an opportunity to help with some of the challenges we're going through, mm -hmm. and was very open to this. and uh, And it's it's been a great experience. There, it's uh, being able to to build a home in, a, in an established community in a mature community like mine has really helped enlighten me <laughs> as part of the process. And it's also helped me identify some of the challenges we have still around things like housing affordability, which is often a big challenge within Phil. Right. So what were some of the specific lessons you learned? So we purposely were making a decision not to build the cheapest home possible. And uh, while there are absolutely, uh, there's absolutely market for uh, lower cost uh, housing options like that, my community at Jasper Park, uh, you know, I want to see it improve and continue to improve. And so we didn't want to, to build uh, as, as cheap as possible. So we found a, a sort of middle ground, recognizing that that was probably a bit of a stretch for, for the community I live in today, the, the pricing we were looking at. But I still felt it was a challenge worth sort of embracing to see if we can, uh, again, continue to enhance my neighborhood. So just I think the first challenge I found was how long it takes to do infill compared to housing in new neighborhoods. It's a long process that really adds up in terms of your holding costs. And I think that's what really pushes up a lot of the pricing of housing in mature communities, just waiting for your permits, going through that process. I think we need to continue to work on that because that's driving up the cost quite a bit. To me, the other piece was was at the end of all this, knowing we purposely weren't building as, as low price as we could, still seeing that I think there's an opportunity for additional 
uh, forms of sort of that gentle density, things like uh, secondary suites in all types of low density residential, not just single family homes on a 50 foot lot. Mm-hmm. Looking at that gentle density, whether it's secondary suites, whether it's garden suites, and being able to allow that opportunity to exist so that maybe you can offset your mortgage costs. So mm-hmm. although your price might be a little bit more than what you might f- see in the suburbs, uh, if you can offset that by renting out a suite, uh, suddenly you you create that affordable option in a mature community. And create some density. Absolutely. The other piece I think it, that it did identify is that, and, and we've been the first to, to suggest this, is that lot subdivision is not the only solution for infill. In fact, it's just one small piece to the puzzle. If you truly hope to have that variety of housing choice at a variety of prices, like we have in the new neighborhoods, you can't just have single family homes on a large lot and single family homes on a narrow lot. You do need row housing. You do need townhomes. You do need that other piece that other type of housing right across the street from my uh, condo building where I live there. They tore down two homes and are building 10 units of row housing, five facing the street, five facing the alley. And, uh, that's a great example of something that will be far more affordable. Those homes are going to start in price, from what I understand, around $350,000, which when you compare that to the suburbs, that is actually right in line yeah, in with what you see. For sure. Absolutely. And, and so I think that's the other part I really learned is that if we're going to truly embrace this as a city and making sure we, we help to revitalize neighborhoods, all of those housing choices need to exist. It just can't be single family homes on larger and on narrow lots. Yeah, in my own community, quite often I'll see, you know, a skinny couple of skinnies go up, and they are seven, eight hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, that's not affordable housing. No, right? no, and, and I mean, you look at some of the communities where you you see that housing type more commonly right now. Spots like Lenora, uh, actually, we're seeing it in Crestwood and Parkview quite a bit. Obviously, the challenges in communities like that. Housing will never be affordable for anyone, right? Even it's high, if high demand location, absolutely. Sure. Right. But what you do need to think about in those type of communities is that relative affordability. Yeah. You know, a fifty a new home on a fifty foot lot sells for one point one to one point three million. If you can get a home on a twenty five foot lot for seven hundred to nine hundred thousand, still not affordable for the average person. <laughs> Far more affordable than what typically housing was in those communities. Yeah. But I think it also shows that. You need to look at the, and this is something council's talked about already, the nodes and corridors as we refer, refer to it as. So looking at your arterial roadways, looking at uh, locations across from major amenities, uh, whether that be transit centers or, a, or a, a school and park space and saying maybe those are locations where we need to focus a potentially a slightly higher level of density. Can you do brownstone developments in mm-hmm. those type of locations, which again, are you going to be you know, 350000 in some of those communities? No. But can you build a $500,000 townhome or brownstone development in a spot like Lenore or Crestwood or Parkview? Mm-hmm. Potentially. Yeah. But you need to make sure you're building those in the right places too. You can't just simply open up the floodgates and say, anywhere you want, you build that. Yeah. It, it makes more sense to focus higher levels of density along those arterial roads, yeah. along those major, across from major transit centers. Uh, so that's part of the the dynamic we have to work our way through. Yeah, well, I you know one example that I think of when you mm-hmm. uh, mentioned that is I I think of St. Albert Trail. Sure, right, and you've got your single family bungalows along there. Yeah, that is prime location for having townhouses and whatnot. Absolutely, but you don't see it happening. So why not? I think there's a couple of reasons we haven't seen it, and 
in years past, the when the cities used to do, when Edmonton used to do uh, neighborhood structure plans or area redevelopment plans, they used to do the rezoning at the time of passing the plan. But more recently, what's happened is the plants have been approved, but the subsequent rezonings haven't occurred, which often creates a whole set of barriers to overcome. So even though the community knows what can be built in their area, there's a whole separate process for somebody to purchase up enough property and then come back and do a rezoning proposal. And that takes time, that takes money, and that additional money adds to the cost of potentially making these developments viable. Mm -hmm. And so I think with what needs to happen next is that when we, as we're developing this new nodes and corridors plan as part of the the missing middle of of density in Edmonton, once we've identified those locations where that makes sense, that that middle uh, level density, I think the council, the next council will need to actually rezone those properties in advance to make those opportunities more accessible for people to uh, move forward on. Because as we know, one of the big challenges is just acquiring the necessary land too. That can often take time. But if that land has been rezoned, I think that might change the conversation a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, It might not be the only way to solve it, but I think it's one way. And again, the other piece is still, I think you need to look at those opportunities for things like secondary suites and garden suites on all low density forms of residential, uh, which is what you see in most major cities. Mm -hmm. And again, it's because they have geographical constraints. They have to do that. But for us to do that, I think, again, makes those uh, locations like a St. Albert Trail suddenly far more attractive for somebody who's thinking of doing some development. They say, well, not only can I buy these properties and do some row housing, we could potentially do a secondary suite, which makes that uh, townhouse more attractive to a young family who's starting out, who might be debating between the suburban communities and the mature communities. Now they can buy that out, rent out the basement suite, uh, at least for a couple of years to help cover off mortgage costs. And then they're good to go. Or, you know, again, an opportunity for a senior to say, listen, maybe I'm going to sell my bungalow, but I want to build a, a single story garden suite either on my existing property or maybe on a new property and then have the main uh, home rented out as a supplemental income as they're on a pension and fixed income. Mm -hmm. A lot of seniors we have are house rich and cash poor. And Mm -hmm. so opportunities like that, I think, will help provide more incentive to do development throughout the city. Right. Okay. Going back to your personal experience with your build. Yeah. How long did all the permitting and and the red tape part of it take? (laughs) Uh, we submitted permits and, and I think it was around, uh, four months in, in many cases to get everything we needed to. And this is, again, you think about how that compares to, to greenfield development and how it's typically a two week process right now. And this is even after having, you know, and while I'm sure not everyone in my community was happy with that development, I think, uh, you know, having talked to the immediate neighbors, having worked with the community league to go through that process, there was a general understanding and, and, and general support, I would say, of that new housing type. But then you have to wait for this long process. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the community has seen this house. We knew that it, I've, I've been staring at it for 10 years out of my life, out of my window <laughs> of my condo, and, and just knowing that it wasn't getting uh, the, its care and attention it needed. And so to, to go through that process of getting sort of the community's general uh, buy into that and then having to wait four months and always get the question like, oh, well, when are you starting? When has something yeah. gone wrong? And 
No, we're just we're just waiting for this process to go through. Right, and if that process happens at the wrong period of the year, you lose a construction season, and then you're waiting that much longer. Absolutely, I mean, it's while I know it is possible to do some of that foundation work in the winter, it's not advisable to do so, and yeah. at least in our climates, and so it can create major challenges if you miss that that, that four-month period. And that's why I think you usually see a, a, such a large amount of applications come in right near year-end because everyone wants to make sure they're ready for as soon as the weather turns and they can start going. Yeah. If you maybe made a mistake, if this is your first time doing building, you know, we had a, a great builder who helped us go through that process. But, you know, if you're somebody starting out and you want to do that yourself, you're, you know, a young family and want to build a property and you don't know every, you know, all the ins and outs and maybe make a mistake on your drawing, what does that mean again for this process? Is, does somebody even decide to take the plunge and build a house for themselves? Mm-hmm. I think that's often a, a, when we talk about sometimes the complaints about infill, people usually always say, well, it's just developers and they're trying to make money. Well, first of all, there's obviously nothing wrong with somebody who's looking to make some money and build new housing. Mm-hmm. But I think the reason we see it's developers and often not just families doing it themselves is because the process is daunting. It's expensive. It's timely. And I think if you aren't willing to address that, you're not going to see individual families come together and, or, and make a decision to invest in a mature community, mm-hmm. which is a concern. So do you think there's a uh, priority at the, the planning level to try to ease the red tape in the process? There is a, a bit of a will, I think I would say, on the council side. And, and I think our administration is starting to get there. I'll, I'll uh, credit Councillor Michael Walters for uh, often raising the point of we have a process for builders who have proven their reputation in greenfield development to give them an expedited permit. Uh, we don't have that right now for infill development. And his suggestion was, can we create that? And I, I do believe there's a plan to work on that and, and create something like that. Because if you do have somebody with that proven track record who works with the community, who doesn't have construction issues and who really takes pride in the work they're doing, why wouldn't we want them to do yeah. more housing in our mature communities? Yeah, and there should be a level playing field. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Many communities in your ward will benefit or be impacted by the planned West LRT mm-hmm. expansion. Tell me a little bit about where we are in the process for that LRT and what sort of challenges or opportunities you see with that. Absolutely. So very excited about the West LRT. Living about half a block away from the Metal Arc LRT station is, is something I've been, this is something I've been looking forward to since I've been in the city. Where we're at today is that uh, the route was approved back in 2009. So that's long since been set uh, coming along 104th Avenue through onto st- merging onto the Stony Plain Road portion, 156th Street, and then onto 87th Avenue all the way out to the west uh, of uh, Lewis Farms Transit Center. Now, uh, where we're at is that council just about uh, in, it was in April, made a decision to uh, fund the necessary land acquisition costs to purchase up the land needed to to do, whether it's construction laydowns, whether it's areas where we will need to actually uh, take out some properties to have the necessary width to, to build it. Uh, so that work is underway. We're also updating our preliminary design work right now as we speak. So really where we're at then from here is that uh, the hope would be to send the project out to tender in the middle of 2018. The only thing that would stop us from going out to tender in the middle of 2018 is if the province doesn't make their formal announcement of support and, and uh, provide the funding for the West LRT. Mm-hmm. Now, 
they have verbally expressed support many times about the West LRT. And in fact, Calgary, just before Stampede, had, a, had an announcement of about $1.5 billion for their LRT network. So it is almost all but certain we will have a, a similar investment being made from the province for our portion of the LRT funding. Uh, and assuming that comes in in the next few months, then the city will go out to tender in the middle of 2018 with the hopes to start construction. Uh, in our latest report, they even said maybe as early as late 2019, probably more likely beginning of 2020. But there's really nothing holding us up right now for the West LRT, which is great news. There's a few additional conversations the next council has to have. We may look at some additional grade separations uh, beyond what was in the initial plan, which was just to go above 170th Street. Mm -hmm. There may be additional grade separations at 170th Street and 87th Avenue, Stony Plain Road and 149th, and a couple of other locations. But generally speaking, the route is all set. We just might have a few tweaks here and there. Right. So just to be clear, yeah. it's going to be at grade, so same as traffic, but maybe from lessons learned on the metro line mm-hmm. and the south line, you would either go above grade or below for specific Yes. Yeah. At some of those key intersections. And and again, this is a very, uh, what not everyone realizes, and, and I mean, I've been going to the meetings for, for 10 years, so it wasn't a surprise to me, but but I still meet people when I go to the doors who uh, weren't aware that the West LRT, along with the Southeast line of the LRT, are being designed uh, using the low floor style of LRT, which is extremely different from our existing LRT system. Uh, it, it looks significantly different. There's no big bars and uh, you know barriers that separate the LRT from the roadway. Uh, you don't have bells at every intersection. It, it's designed, if anyone's ever been to spots like Portland or Minneapolis or many Northern European cities, this sort of streetcar style of LRT is very common. It's designed to more closely integrate with the community, provide opportunities for redevelopment, which is part of why previous council in 2009 selected Stony Plain Road as as the route to hopefully help reinvigorate that area and bring in some new development and, uh, and new residential development. But that is important to know. So even though it's this different style of LRT, I, I still think the, the idea that council is looking at is saying it might still be worth investing a little more at a couple of these critical intersections just to make sure it operates as smoothly as possible. And then for those that need to drive to help minimize the impact to them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how are things going on the Southeast uh, Lake? It's under construction. Everything's yeah. on, on uh, track. Everything is yeah uh, uh, on track is a good, good uh, term. Yeah. But I didn't on, even intend that. That's but. right. <laughs> uh, on time on budget right now yeah. because it was uh, the Edmonton's first uh, P3 contract of this scale. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, we're keeping a close eye on it, but uh, everything is trending in the right direction right now. There's obviously pretty big penalties if the uh, the proponents and, and the current uh, transit partnership isn't able to uh, meet their opening dates. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they not only have penalties, but they they don't get to actually operate the system, which is part of their contract. So mm-hmm. they'll be missing out on on revenue in that sense right. too. So I think there's there's motivation for everyone involved to make sure they hit the. Uh, I believe it's December 2020 uh, opening date. Right, which, you know, it's kind of good timing that we're talking about something yeah. like that since the Walterdale Bridge finally has yes. opened this week. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thankfully, we're starting to see some of these projects that were having a lot of issues. I mean, and, and, and they were 
started under a very different time, under a very different structure within the city of Edmonton. At least they're, they're beginning to wrap up now. Uh, and there have been so many lessons learned and so many changes within the city of Edmonton. Uh, you, you shouldn't expect to see that with a lot of these newer projects that started in the last couple of years because the systems have changed. Our tendering processes have changed. Uh, even just the reporting system to council has changed. So mm -hmm. I think people can be a lot more confident going forward uh, about our major projects. Even today, we're at, uh, with 85% of our major projects are on or ahead of schedule and 93% of them are on or under budget. That's a good trend. We obviously want to see that number continue to rise and, mm -hmm. and the many changes will help with that. So these major infrastructure projects will will continue to open and, and which will help the city as a whole. Yeah. So I drove across the Walter Dale last night oh, for the good. first time. I thought it was pretty impressive. And of course, it's right beside Rossdale. Yes. So what are your thoughts on what should happen to the Rossdale area going forward? Well, I think, uh, you know, I think there's a desire to see that get put to, to use and uh, have some life brought into it. Obviously, there the one piece that really needs some some additional work is that the community had previously worked on an area redevelopment plan for the area and spent a lot of time and a lot of years developing what that plan would look like. So I think as part of this, we are re-engaging that community to talk about how we're up, how we can update that plan to allow the Rosdale area to be to really improve uh, and to to and again the, the existing community is fantastic. It's just that space. There's there's so much opportunity for that site, and we just need to make sure we're working with the community as part of it. And, and it's not just the city as a whole. We have to remember that this is going to be a fairly major project for the local community as well, and we'd like their uh, support in developing that future plan. But, right. uh, and just just yeah. to be clear, sorry yeah. to interrupt, but just to be clear, we're talking specifically around where the old Rossdale power plant exactly, is. Exactly, exactly. And so I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for significant redevelopment there. I mean, what, what we have there is not, I think, adding a lot of value to, yeah. uh, to the community or to the city as a whole. And so uh, it would be nice uh, in 2018 to, to be able to provide some firm direction as, as to how we're going to see that area proceed. What would you like to see happen there? Oh, you know, I, I, I don't claim to have the, the perfect design plans yet, but I, I think, again, you, you have opportunities. We've seen uh, different people bring forward proposals around this canal and, uh, and this residential uh, mixed-use developments. Uh, and I, again, I think it's a, a prime site for something like that. Ideally, it'd be great to make sure that whatever's being done helps bring more people to the River Valley as well. I, I think that is a... a we don't take advantage of that that this asset nearly as much as we should and we've already started to see even even something like the accidental beach and just suddenly that when you have the right kind of amenities how many more people will take advantage of it so i think whatever we're doing there and I, and i don't proclaim to have the the solution today but i'd like to make sure it's both great for the local community but great for activating space around that the, around this entire river valley and letting people getting to enjoy it mm -hmm. yeah uh, are you familiar with uh, the forks in winnipeg i am yes yeah, so, i think I mean, that's a great example of what you could see and and uh again i we know we have to go through a bit of a process here to, to develop that plan but i think as soon as we as soon as that plan is ready i'd love to see it get moving yeah and and just you know to be clear the forks is kind of like a, a mini granville island thing mm -hmm. where there's you know restaurants and a museum and 
a theater, et cetera, et cetera. So it becomes quite a, a tourist destination. Absolutely. Yeah. What are your thoughts on uh, the massive development that we're seeing in uh, downtown now that the arena has been completed and these other towers are going in? I think it's what everyone had hoped for. I mean, whether a person was a, a fan or not of the arena deal back in the day, I think everyone wanted to see that that promise that was uh, made during those discussions around subsequent development to come to fruition. And, and that's what we've been seeing. I mean, billions of dollars of new buildings go up uh, and both commercial, residential, we're seeing uh, just a, a brand new life into our downtown, something that I think we used to have decades ago. And we're reinvigorating that space. And so it's really exciting to see everything that's happening now around not just Ice District, but but throughout the entire downtown. I mean, and I'll even extend that further as you go into spots like Oliver. We're starting to see that across the entire core redevelopment. Obviously, there's still a lot of sites left that, that there's a lot of potential. And we've got a lot of surface parking lots that... Uh, that could stand to, to become something more. <laughs> but I think what we're seeing now is, is a transformation of our downtown into, into everything that they had, had promised years ago. Do you think it, there's the risk of there being an overshoot there? I mean, a lot of that it was planned when oil prices were 100 bucks a barrel, right? We're now in a $50 environment. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of challenges for the oil sands, etc. Yeah. What's the potential for a downside there? You know, we... Calgary and Edmonton are each seeing challenges in their downtown vacancies, but we're a bit different because most of our vacancies are actually in the B and C class buildings and not in the A class buildings. And I think that's why I'm not as concerned. I mean, anytime your vacancies in the double digits, it's a concern, but not to the same level as what you're seeing in other locations. Really what this says is that there's a lot of older buildings that need to be updated. And I actually think what this is doing right now and all of this new development, while it's created those larger vacancies, I think it creates opportunities for those building owners to say, well, maybe it's time to do something new. Either we need to completely revamp this building and turn it into an A-class building, or maybe we want to look at repurposing it and put in residential. I mean, I think that's the big gap still. We have lots of, I mean, with all these new towers, with all of these new businesses coming in, with, it, with what's going to be happening there, Downtown is going to be a very desirable, and it already is a very desirable location to live in. There's great opportunity for B and C class buildings to be repurposed into lower cost residential housing for the, those who want to be where the action is yeah. and, and are looking for that different type of housing options. And so, you know, it's something we need to keep an eye on. And actually, uh, I brought forward a discussion point a while back around keeping an eye on the vacancies and seeing how the city can be supportive as part of the repurposing process. And so, yeah, I know the Edmonton Economic Development Corporation is keeping an eye on it. We're all sort of working together on this. This isn't something that we're ignoring. We know that if we don't watch it closely and be willing to be nimble and adjust quickly, uh, that it could become a, a, an issue. But uh, for now, I think this development is actually uh, significantly more positive than negative. Right. Okay. Yeah. So now what about the east side of downtown? I live just <laughs> below 95th Street and Jasper Avenue. And, you know, if you look at that intersection, you've got derelict building, a condo uh, building that was never built but supposed to build, be built, a vacant uh, lot that used to own a or have a dilapidated garage on it, and then a massive hole where a failed tower development didn't proceed. Yeah. I've been living in the area for 17 years. Yeah. Not much has changed. How are you going to solve that problem? 
you don't solve something like that overnight. And unlike with Ice District, I don't think there's one project that can create that spark that will just have billions of dollars of additional development. I think we've seen some smaller uh, projects go forward. I mean, even something like the Hyatt Hotel, which is phenomenal yeah. for the area and, and such a beautiful building and, and I think really adds to it. But I, I think the city needs to be willing to to keep an eye on the plan, the quarters area redevelopment plan, and, and see if there are opportunities we're missing. Maybe something in that plan is, is stopping us from being uh, from developing it the way we want. So I, I think it would be worthwhile of re-engaging with the community to Talk about what may or may not need to change mm-hmm. to help bring in that development that you want to see. Uh, but there's, if there was a quick solution, it would have been done already, and, and we would have had it. But uh, you can't force an area to redevelop you. But you have to, through your policies, through your zoning, make sure that you're not restricting the potential for that to come forward. I think we, through the approval of the 80-story tower, and while that was a split vote. You know, even though I didn't support that particular development, it wasn't because I didn't think it was going to be good. In fact, I think it could really have a positive impact for the area. But I think the bigger question was, how do we look at that in relation to the rest of the plan? And how are we going to make sure we're, we're developing out that area mm-hmm. in, a, in a responsible way that's that's done through good urban design, that's done through good planning principles as well? Yeah. Do you think 80-story tower will actually end up being built right there on the riverbank? <sighs> It's a phenomenal opportunity. I, you know, I, I'd like to believe that they're going to do it. I mean, there's a, it has to be a minimum of 40 stories as approved in the zoning. I don't know. I, I, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of cost to, to get that site ready. I hope so, though. I mean, again, while, while I, I, I didn't support it, not because I didn't think it'd be good for the area, but there was a larger conversation that I think we should have had as part of the plan. So I actually really want that to succeed. I want that to be a positive for the area. I'd love it to be that spark to help spur the rest of the develop, redevelopment in the quarters. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, and you know, I drive up and down 95th Street just about every day, mm-hmm. uh, one of the issues that, and whether or not it was intentional or not, is that you have this massive concentration of uh, social services for people who yes. obviously need help, right? Yeah. From my perspective, things should be spread out uh, throughout other neighborhoods, right? So if council is in agreement with that and the city's in agreement with that, how come we're not seeing that happen? I think the main reason we hadn't seen it happening is there wasn't the, the, the money from the provincial and federal governments to build new housing. That money has been announced now in the last six months. And so we now the funding is going to be there to start building into other communities. But we hadn't seen major housing investments in probably over a decade, uh, which is why, I mean, we can talk about it all day long, but, yeah. but unless there's actually money to build this, because the city's role is not to build permanent supportive housing. Our role is to make sure the land is available, work with the communities, but we can't that's not really, it shouldn't be within our jurisdiction to actually fund the construction of it. We have to support the other two orders of government to make this happen. And uh, with the recent funding announcements, I think we're going to see that actually start to start to happen throughout the city. And do you think that will then have a direct impact on quarters redevelopment? I think that would certainly help to make sure that we're not concentrating permanent supportive housing in any one part of town. Yeah. You need to make sure you've spread that out. Uh, we all play a role in this. And uh but if you over-concentrate an area, that can be a, a, a deterrent. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that is a, that stigma 
for mm-hmm. lack of a better word, has been, you know, one of the reasons you haven't seen much go forward on the quarters. That's probably a fair point. Yeah. yeah. So what do you, uh, you know, assuming you get reelected, which <laughs> I hope so, <laughs> <laughs> what, what would you like to see council do over the next term? A lot of work to do in a number of different areas, but I can, I'll focus on one key item. The next council's responsible for updating the next 10-year municipal development plan. That will shape how we grow as a city. But that document doesn't just impact land use, that impacts transportation, that impacts our economy, that impacts our environment. And if you don't develop that plan properly, you're going to put yourself in a, in a, in a challenging position. That document is what informs our administration's work over the next 10 years. And so I think council has to get that plan right and, uh, and to set the direction of how we want to see ourselves grow over the next 10 years. So everything else is secondary to that one document because mm-hmm. everything else is directly connected to that document. So what would you like to see in that document? Years ago, I would have said I wanted to see a focus on more infill, but focusing the percentage on more. We, we used to have this target of 25% infill. I think that's as I've reflected on it more and more, it's actually less about the number and more about what type of communities we want to create. Do we want to create vibrant communities with active schools, uh, vibrant local businesses with a mix of housing choice? If that's the focus, which it is for me, I'm not so worried about what that percent is at. I'm worried about what have we done to create an environment to allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have the policy in place that allows that to happen, that's what needs to be fixed. And so I think we set that high level vision in the document and then through additional policies, you allow that to actually become a reality. Right. And what's interesting is you can get these unintended consequences that will hold back redevelopment. Absolutely. So so an example is grocery store covenants on land. What that means is you have a grocery store, that grocery store, let's say, is owned by a large chain. They pack up that location and no one can put another grocery store in there for years. That's right. And it's created major challenges and something the city's tried to deal with, but really we need provincial help to be able to stop that from uh, occurring or to be able to remove some of these. We don't have the authority as a municipality to do that has been really frustrating for certain communities. Mm-hmm. What does the grocery store chain care if they've already packed up? I actually think in some cases they don't even know. I mean, you have some of these that have been inherited that have been in place for decades and decades, and, and a lot of them were on Safeway sites. And when Sobeys bought them, I actually we'd actually asked, the uh, as a council, we, we passed a motion to ask the mayor to engage Sobeys to see if there would be a willingness to, to remove them. Uh, so we didn't have to go the route of the provincial government. Unfortunately, we never did hear back. And, and I just don't know if there's a, I don't think there's a need to, to keep it in place. I just don't know if it's uh, sort of top of mind right now. And so I'm hoping that at some point Sobeys realizes that, uh, that these are actually really hurting certain communities, these covenants. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it'd be in their best corporate interests. Uh, I, I would hope for them to say, you know, maybe we should do this for the benefit of, of the communities we operate in to uh, and even don't operate in to allow these opportunities to or other redevelopment to occur. And just on the commercial front, other things, uh, you know, older strip malls and redeveloping those, those are critical to yeah. neighborhoods, right? They are. So how do you go about making or encouraging owners to do that? Well, we have some, uh, we've been doing our corner stores program uh, that has allowed us to, and our facade improvement programs to help bring new life into those uh, buildings and those developments. And uh, I think one of the 
best examples is over in Petrolia Mall in the South Central area where uh, I know Councillor Michael Walters has done just incredible work bringing new businesses to the area, creating what a, a new vibrant shopping hub for the for the neighborhoods. And uh, and I think that's your great news story that can be applied to other areas. And so we have the policies and programs in place mm -hmm. and uh, you do need willing partners on the other end of the actual landowners. But um, I think we've got everything we need to allow that to happen. It, it, the only uh, piece we might need to think about is making sure there's enough funding to, to do as many as we might need to. Right. And so when you say Petroleum Mall, you mean like Calgary Trail Gateway and around 60th Ave or where? Because uh, there's been I, lots of redevelopment there. Yes, lately. there's a, uh, I don't know the exact street address. There's a, there's a, a sort of strip mall shopping center where there's a new, no, or relatively new no frills that went in a, a few years ago. I just can't remember the address off the top of my head, but I know um, that it's an area that, like I said, Councillor Walters had been working on for years as, as a councillor for the area. And, and uh, it's been really spectacular to see uh, what, what's gone on there. Even spots like the Ritchie Market as well would be another shining example of some of the uh, the programs that are in place. Right. Okay. Yeah. Is there uh, anything that you'd like to add or any question that I didn't ask that you think is important to address before we wrap up? No, I think that's everything. Thank you so okay. much for having me. Well, thank you very much and good luck on October 16th. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you.